Welcome to the FinTech Today podcast with your host, Carlos Cabrera, where everything is unfolded from FinTech news, personalities, and stories just for you. Hello, everyone. This is your host, uh, Carlos Cabrera, here for uh, FinTech Today. My guest in this episode is very well known in the blockchain industry. His name is Andrew Kegel. He's the co-founder and CEO of Tokens.com. He is also was involved in Hot8, is, uh, which was one of the largest publicly traded Bitcoin mining and infrastructure companies. He managed to raise a lot of money, $108 million in equity, $33 million in debt. And um, also he was the managing director of Stifle Canada for 18 years. He holds an MBA for the University of um, Toronto, and he has a Bachelor of Arts uh, from the York University. So welcome, Andrew. Very excited to have you here with uh, FinTech today. Thanks, Carlos. I haven't heard my full biography like that in a long time, so it was like... <laughs> Hopefully I did a good job. <laughs> yeah, that's so, so tell us, what's, uh, what's uh, tokens.com about and why do you think the uh, DeFi movement is so important? Yeah, I think better if, when in talking about tokens.com, I always like to take a step back and talk about how I got into crypto, which led me to tokens.com. I feel like when I started tokens.com, I'm leaving a bunch of things behind. But uh, I was an investment banker for 20 years. As you pointed out, my last company, I was there for over 18 years. And on the banking side, essentially what my job was finding good companies, packaging them up properly and making them available to institutions and retail. And through that, I got to see a lot of different companies. And back in 2017, I started seeing back in 2016, actually, I started seeing a lot of companies in the blockchain space, specifically to Bitcoin. And I was thinking that there wasn't really a way for the public market investor to get exposure to Bitcoin. For someone like me, my preferred way of investing in anything is as a public vehicle. But back then, if you wanted to buy Bitcoin, you had to go and do it directly. And so that's what I did. Um, I created an account. I had to do the KYC, the AML, creating all these things. I wired money to Gibraltar. It disappears for a few days. And then it gets there. And then all of a sudden you have to figure out how do you buy the Bitcoin from this digital wallet? What's the right prices, the best times to buy it? And then how do you secure it? Right. And back then it was a challenge. And I thought to myself, there should be an easier way for the public market person to buy this, but the funds, the ETFs were not uh, regulated yet. So the thought was, why don't we create a Bitcoin mining company that holds its Bitcoin and we take that public and because the company holds all the Bitcoin it mines and it's public, people would have that direct exposure to Bitcoin through a public company. And so we did that. And that's really how HUD8 was created. Um, and HUD8, I did that with some other people while I was still a banker and I raised the capital for the business. And as we were building the business, we realized we had a lot of demand for the product, but we didn't have a CEO to run it. And so the, the group came to me and asked me if I would go in and, and run the business. And I thought, yeah, this is a really uh, easy decision because, you know, I had been a banker for a long time. 
And I think it's every banker's dream or most people's dreams to be able to go in and start a business. And in this case, I went to go start a business that already had close to 110 million in the bank. I had a great board of directors and I was in a very hot space. So I left and uh, became an entrepreneur and the CEO of HUD8, oversaw the build out of that company through 2018, 19 and into 20. And as I was going through that, I think a few things started going through my mind. Building a large uh, Bitcoin miner requires a lot of energy use. There's no doubt about that. And we saw the, some of the criticism around that earlier this year. I'm sure you saw the stuff from like Elon Musk. And in, in the US, there's a lot of uh, politicians who, who are opposed to this. So there was this sort of thing on my shoulder all the time of like the, the, the mining company I had built had become one of the largest in North America and was consuming enough electricity for you know, an entire small city. I also saw some other things that the technology used in crypto mining is old technology. It was developed back in, in 2018 for Bitcoin. It uses a lot of electricity, but it's also slow. And that's always been one of the big criticisms against uh, Bitcoin is it's good as a storage of value and it's a little bit clunky because it's slow and it suits that purpose really well. But if you wanted to do more things with it and create other things that were interesting, it wasn't really ideal for that. Mm -hmm. That's where Ethereum came along and people were like, oh, Ethereum is good because you can program it, you can do other things. But Ethereum still built on the crypto mining operating system. I like to call them operating systems because it's a little bit like, you know, your flip phone moving to iOS or Android and, and the advantages. So you had these, the system, the crypto mining system, which was old, uh, slow and used up a lot of electricity. And then a couple of years ago, a new system was created called proof of stake. So proof of work is crypto mining and proof of stake or crypto staking would be the new alternative. And when I compared the two side by side, I said, wow, staking has a lot of advantages to crypto mining. Number one, 99% less electricity is consumed. Number two, there's no hardware used. You're compensated the same, the accounting is the same, but instead of buying hardware in the way a crypto miner would and using electricity, you're actually buying the token. Other advantages, and this was the big one for people like for groups like Ethereum, which are converting their entire platform from crypto mining to crypto staking, it's a lot faster. And what I mean by a lot faster is this, crypto mining technology can process about 15, one five transactions per second. Might seem kind of fast, but to put it into perspective for you, Visa and MasterCard can do 20 to 30,000 transactions per second. The staking platform can process up to 100,000 transactions per second. So as I started looking at this and saying, okay, crypto mining will always be essential for Bitcoin, but if you look into the future and you start thinking about things like DeFi and NFTs and all these other things going on, they really just don't function very well on crypto mining, which is why this new technology is necessary. So it not only addresses the environmental concern, but it also addresses the scalability. And this is why Ethereum is making this huge leap from proof of work to proof of stake. It's not just the environmental footprint, but for Ethereum, if you want to maintain your dominant position in the world of DeFi and NFTs, 
you can't do it on 15 transactions per second. It's a little bit like drinking water through a pinhole because it's not fast enough. And so that's why they're transitioning. And if you look into the entire crypto universe today, nothing is built on crypto staking technology anymore. You know, you've, maybe you've heard of Polkadot or Solana or Matic or some of these other tokens that are out there. Nothing has been built on crypto mining technology for the last two years. And the reason why, again, is simple. The environmental concern, the speed concern, and this proof of stake has addressed both of those. So far, it's been very successful in, in deploying its technology of keeping the blockchain safe, but it's also a better business model for the third parties that do this. So back to where I was going. So I was, I was running ahead eight. I had this sort of epiphany that, wow, this is the future and I'm working in the past. So I went to the board. Um, I told them that I, I wanted to, to leave and pursue other things. Um, we, we talked about it. I gave them five months to find a replacement. Uh, I, I stuck around. And then once the five months were over, I left and I created tokens.com. Tokens.com started out with the same idea that we started Hadate out with, which is let's create a public vehicle that gives people exposure to things in crypto. But by last year, when I created tokens.com, there was already various ways for people to get exposure to Bitcoin. There's funds, there's ETFs, there's all kinds of vehicles. There's, you know, whereas HUD-8 was, I think, the first public Bitcoin miner. Today, there's probably a hundred public Bitcoin miners around <laughs> the world or more. There was nothing unique there. In terms of tokens.com, I believe we're the only public company with a focus on staking, crypto staking, which is this new environmentally friendly technology. And to do staking, we have to buy the tokens. And so I thought this is a much better model for getting people exposure to crypto than crypto mining, where you're investing in hardware and electricity to produce coin. In this scenario, I'm buying coin to produce more coin. Uh, it's a very good system and gives you that exposure. So we, that's how we got into it. And, and when I look at things like DeFi and NFTs, back to your original question, it really depends on the growth of staking because you can't revolutionize in DeFi, decentralized finance is really finding ways to evolve and in many ways revolutionize the way financial services are delivered. You cannot do that with 15 transactions per second. That's right. And you don't want to do that on a system that will tax the energy and electricity constraints of wherever it's located. And so that's how I got to uh, tokens.com. I see. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about DeFi and and do you think it uh, its growth right now and in the future will be even throughout the world or will, will it be a movement that will, will be stronger in the unbanked or, or developing world rather than North America, for instance? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I can't say no the answer, but there's certainly an argument to be made that this will be more popular in less advanced countries. And the reason why is for a lot of people, I mean, look, the, the truth is that the banking system today is a dinosaur. Uh, if you're trying to wire money from one place to another, it, you know, it disappears for 24 hours, sometimes longer. You don't quite know where things are. And for people who are in areas with even, and that's in, in places like Canada or the U.S., if you're in places, you know, parts of Africa or Asia or South America, anywhere, getting things done could be even slower. I mean, it feels like, you know, you do things by computer 
but then it goes to people with pen and paper who are trying to push this stuff through. It's not, it's not efficient. And so what I think that is happening in DeFi is that we're not cre necessarily creating new products. We're finding them better, faster, cheaper ways to deliver the existing products through blockchain technology in ways that cost people less. And so for example, if you know, th this is a real example. We were looking to buy at tokens.com uh, uh, a token, uh, part of a, a token sale earlier this year. And you know, it wasn't big, I think it was like $500,000. And so we're on the phone because we needed to get there by Sunday. And it was a Saturday when we were negotiating this. And we were like, oh, geez, how are we going to get the money there by Sunday? The banks are closed and we have to improve. And then we all sort of sat back and we had a little bit of a laugh and we said, we can just send it in crypto and it'll take 15 minutes and cost us about 50 cents, right? Like <laughs> the systems that exist today are too slow. They're not reliable. And the banks charge us more than they should. You look at things like international remittance, which, is, and this was a business case, but for people who are sending money overseas, for people legitimately, like I mentioned before, I'm from Chile and I will occasionally send money to my family there to, to help them out. When you use the SWIFT system and the banking system, it takes a long time and there's a lot of fees. You know, the average fee for international remittance around the world, people sending money to family, relatives, friends, it's a 9% average fee from time it leaves your bank to the time it arrives somewhere else. 9% in fees. This is a trillion dollar business for the banks. They're taxing and taking fees from the people that can probably least afford to do that. That's right. This can all be improved and solved by using technology. So when you talk about, will it be evenly spread out around the world? I think there's a huge advantage if you have access to internet and you're in a, you know, a second or third world country, this is a way of accessing bank services for lower costs. And it's not just moving money around. It could be things like lending. If you have crypto uh, as Bitcoin, or Ethereum, like I do, and I deposit at certain places, and I'm earning 3% on my Bitcoin. How much do you earn at the bank today? I mean, even with inflation rates today, the way they're going, you're losing money if your bank money is in the bank. That's right. At least if I'm depositing it at these different places and I'm receiving back, I can, I can receive my interest in fiat currency, US dollar. I can receive it in additional Bitcoin. I have options. There's other ways in crypto where you can go and earn yield from your capital through different lending sites. You can borrow against your crypto, all types of things that you can do that are not available to a lot of people around the world. And even if they are available, it's done faster, cheaper, and more profitably in the DeFi space. That's, that's uh, very true and, and uh... I couldn't agree more with what you're saying because anyone that sends money anywhere in the world from North America or any developed country will have to go through all the, uh, the layers that you're talking about. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was just going through your bio and one of the things that it's right now um, very uh, much talked about is the metaverse and all this, uh, different scenarios about how real estate will be revolutionized through uh, metaverse. So can you tell us more about, you, you know, your uh, thoughts on it and your uh, recent purchase in metaverse? Yeah. 
So just to, to clarify, Carlos, I don't think that real estate, physical real estate will be revolutionized through the metaverse, but I think that it has created a new asset category for digital real estate. Um, but I, I think the metaverse is going to impact a whole bunch of different areas. So for example, uh, computing, social media, advertising, these are all areas that I think will be impacted strongly by the metaverse. Now for, for listeners, what the metaverse is, it's a 3D environment where people can interact with each other via avatars. Uh, this is done online on computers. If you think about if your kids pay, it's things like um, Roblox or Minecraft. Those are examples of metaverses. And the metaverses that are popular today are built on blockchain technology where people can actually go in and own things. So, you know, they're NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and you can own a pair of shoes, so, you know, I say a handbag or art or a hat, all types of different things, but you can also own the land. And that's the part that was interesting to me, because if you look at various metaverses, and I know the, I know I'm very familiar with Decentraland, and the founders of that are from Argentina. And in Decentraland, if you, you know, if you were to lay it out as a square, it's a rectangle, the city, and there's various neighborhoods, and as I understand it, in Decentraland, there's 90,000 parcels of land available, okay? So the city is made up of 90,000 little parcels side by side. Half of those, 45,000 of those are untouchable. They're owned by Decentraland. And those are the things that beautify the city. So those are like parks, rivers, um, the, the, the fountains in the downtown core. Those cannot be sold. Those are owned by the, the foundation of Decentraland. But the other 45,000 are available for people to purchase. Right. So to me, I started thinking as more people go into the metaverse, these parcels of land are gonna become more and more valuable as the city gets built. And what's interesting about a place like Decentraland is the content and the experiences in the city are built by the users. And so if we buy the land, Somebody who wants to create a storefront, an advertisement, or build a building or create an experience would have to come to us and put something up and build it on our land. And I think that is the part that's that's interesting to me and why I think this is, you know, a lot of the same attributes as Bitcoin and that you have scarcity and an increasing interest level in what's happening there. And so, and I think we've seen that play out, you know, Decentraland has its own currency called mana and we've seen that increase i think from you know 10 cents or something to like four dollars in the last 12, 12 months as people go in there and use this currency as a way to buy um you know various things so that's kind of what i'm seeing is that as more people congregate in the metaverses and they want to offer up experiences and maybe that's advertising or whatever they will need to do it on land owned by people like us. And that's really the, the whole idea behind it. I see. And uh, basically, you know, do you plan on, say, the land that you either got or plan to get uh, in the future? Do you plan on now? Uh, what, what can you do specifically with a parcel of land so that our listeners can get a, a, a total view of things? Can you just build a house? Can you uh, add trees? Is it like a regular parcel in real life? 
Yeah, I can do, you can do anything you want with it, really. I mean, there's some zoning laws. You can't put up hate speech or something that's offensive, highly offensive to people. Um, I don't know. I mean, you can build a house and you can have your friends over. But what generally what people are, are doing is they're building experiences. And so um, with the parcel of land we bought, it's in the fashion district. We plan to hold fashion shows there. Now, this might sound silly to some listeners, but Gucci, Balenciaga, Chanel, Nike, Adidas, a whole list of large brands are already uh, buying land in the metaverse and creating these experiences. And so what we wanna do is create a, an area almost like going to a mall where you will have various uh, vendors uh, available with their storefronts where people can go in and purchase things. Other things that you see in there are games. So there's casinos, there's like interactive games where you can compete against people. There are museums that show sort of the top selling NFTs. There's educational centers. Um, there's a place that's more like an amusement park where your character can ride around. Music festivals are a big thing. Uh, a lot of musicians are holding music festivals in the metaverse because it's a nice way to access a new audience perform or maybe try new music, try different things. And the artist doesn't necessarily even need to leave their house. So this is just a way to access people and for people to share in the love of a music, regardless of where you're located, because geography doesn't matter when you have access to the internet. You can all meet with your friends and listen to a musical artist or go to a museum or do different things, regardless of where you're located around the world. Wow, that's... Definitely, it's something that's so interesting. And I've heard just uh, in uh, Discord and certain, uh, uh, you know, certain uh, chat places where the you, I follow that definitely a lot of musicians are actually hosting these kind of events, which seemed uh, probably a few years ago uh, kind of uh, impossible. Now it's becoming a reality. Yeah, no, it's, it's really cool. And, uh, you know, they're attracting a lot of people, I think. Uh, Travis Scott in Fortnite attracted over a million people. I know that in Decentraland, they held a big DJ music festival about a month ago, attracted over 50,000 unique visitors. So there's a real market for this, for people who want to come and share in these experiences. And, you know, metaverses are allowing them to do so without having to go out of their house. And in the days of COVID, um, that's a big advantage for a lot of people who, you know, depending on where they live, either can't travel or don't have access to this. But if you think about when, when musicians are traveling around, they don't go to every city, right? It's impossible. Right. You go to the major large cities because that's where you're going to get your largest audience. Right. However, through these metaverses, they can go on and perform and anybody can be there and participate in this live regardless of whether you live in a large city or a small city or where you are in the world. Oh, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And uh, we definitely have to keep an eye on what happens in, in the metaverse and uh, this, all this revolution that's going oh, yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, just wondering, when it comes to nowadays, what you perceive in blockchain with regulation, and there's a lot of talk that uh, Canada and the U.S. will have more regulation. Are you at all concerned that this will actually slow down the, the movement and, and, I mean, kind of affect the ecosystem in some ways? Yeah, I think everybody in the blockchain crypto community has some concerns over what the government will do. And, and my concern is around what I would call unintended consequences. 
What I mean by unintended consequences is we have often seen that when the regulators and the government comes in, they pronounce rules that are not realistic or easy to follow. And we've seen this in Canada and the US where they come in and they say, okay, this can't be done or you need, or you need to have this, this and this, and it's just not possible. Um, what that ends up doing is, is twofold. Number one, a lot of the legitimate companies that are looking to get exposure or to provide people with exposure to these, you know, whether it's crypto trading or anything else, will usually pack up, leave and go offshore. Right. The second unintended consequence when you have over-regulation is that you get a whole bunch of bad actors that come out. And what happens is, is that people say, oh, they shut down whatever Binance or this thing, but I know a guy who knows a guy. And if you meet him in the parking lot, he'll give you, you know, these types of things, right? And what ends up happening is that people that think they're trying to get exposure to this will end up dealing with what I would call bad actors and people that end up taking their money or not legitimate. And we've seen this with a lot of exchanges, like in Canada, there was Quadriga and other places where the good players are pushed out because it's, you know, they'll look at and say, this market is overregulated. It's not worth us being there. So that leads people to use inferior, less safe methods of getting exposure. And I think that to me is the biggest risk is overregulation will scare the good players out. People will still want to get that access and they'll end up doing it in ways that, you know, they could lose their money that are, are far riskier because of the people involved. Right. And, and say, given that if you feel at some point that that uh, regulation is slowing down your business, would you ever consider taking it to uh, such places as Singapore or um, you know one of the Gibraltar, one of these? There's always a new one in somewhere yeah. else. You know, not for our business. Our business is very straightforward in that we're just providing the staking service. Um, we do it on behalf of our shareholders. So I don't, I don't have specific clients per se. Like you don't go to like, Carlos, if you came to me and said, do you want it to do staking? I'd be like, great, go find another, go find a provider. We don't do that. I don't have clients. We raise capital through the public vehicle and then apply it to the businesses that we, that we run. And so we are the only client that we have to deal with, which makes it a lot easier for us from a regulatory standpoint. I think where regulation is, is scary is for people, for companies that are dealing with individuals, um, you know, those are the people that are getting over, potentially over-regulated. I think there's other areas too, I've seen in places like Canada where the accounting standards as a public company, they make it difficult for you. I saw that when I was running HUD-8 and I know a lot of companies have difficulty obtaining audits. And that's because there's, there's an actual consented effort by the regulators to make it difficult for publicly traded crypto companies. There's right. no doubt about it, but you're not acting in the best interest of the shareholders and the people you're trying to protect by making things difficult and trying to enforce rules that aren't possible. I'll give you an example. So at HUD-8, Bitcoin mining company, Bitcoin mining is the process of providing third-party validations to blocks that happen in the cloud all over the world through people that have already set up accounts. They will come and say, you know, you're almost like the electricity, you know, you're, you're just providing a, a block to make sure that 
cryptology rules are being followed. But you know, the regulators could come in and be like, we want to see who's behind every single transaction in the block. Well, that, that's impossible for a miner to do because it doesn't have access to that information. But these are the types of things sometimes that regulators will come in and, and, and demand because they don't understand the technology, they don't understand what's going on. I see. Well, you know, they definitely, it's, that was, that's good that your business is somewhat isolated because basically most of the regulation, as you say, has to deal with uh, individuals and, 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 you know, just regular day-to-day consumers. So I'm just wondering, you have a great bio and a great story. What, what's, uh, like, say, what would you say that has driven you throughout all this time? And what are your, uh, what's your message for our listeners here about how they can follow in your footsteps uh, one day? Yeah, so look, it's a hard question to answer. You know, for me, it was really just a function of sometimes, you know, being more lucky than smart and being at the right place. Um, having been a banker for a long time, you know, I was an investment banker for 20 years. It gave me the opportunity to see various businesses. You know, my job was really to evaluate people's businesses, their management styles every single day, and then sort of choose what is what people, A, a product that people want to have exposure to, um, but a good management team that can deliver that. And so I think through that, you know, the area that I, since I left banking, that I've been able to achieve is to find exciting things that are happening and connect it to the public market investors. And that's been my area where, like I said, I had a, the, the light bulb went off and I said, this is an area I can be an entrepreneur and, and, and run, run my businesses. But, you know, being an, an entrepreneur is hard. I mean, you need to have thick skin. You need to be able to accept you know, rejection, failure, getting back up and trying again. And certainly there's a lot of that for myself and for any entrepreneur where, you know, you just got to have a lot of belief in what you're doing. Understand that the door is going to get closed on you frequently, but it's about being persistent with your vision and and being able to move forward. Um, Like I said, for me, I have found everything in, in, in the blockchain space to be very fascinating. And I try and create things that I would use. Um, And so when I'm, you know, whether it's HUD8 or tokens.com as public companies, they're companies that I would want to own if I wasn't involved because it gives me that exposure that I'm looking for. I see. Well, that's, uh, there you have it, uh, guys. This was a pleasure, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope that, uh, you know, we get to follow up on this uh, new company that you have, tokens.com. Guys, make sure you check it out. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it.